You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Dean Knetter, in for Rob Ferret. Now, after years of shrinking attendance, movie theaters are starting to see a rise in ticket sales. That's due in part to the success of several major blockbusters over the summer. Here's CBS New York's Ali Ballman reporting from the opening weekend of Barbie and Oppenheimer. There is a parade of pink walking into the movies this weekend. It's the fun energy, the fashion, the like bubbly spirit. It's just like nostalgia as a kid. With opening weekend for both Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. And for Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Let's go recruit some scientists. Together we get Barbenheimer. But can movie theaters sustain all the energy and excitement of a Barbenheimer summer? Or will people return to the comfort of their homes to watch movies on streaming? Our next guest has a few ideas for how movie theaters can bring the crowds back. And we want to hear from you, too, at 800-642-1234. Have you gone to see a movie at the theater lately? What was your experience like? Are you someone who prefers to watch from home on streaming? If so, what, if anything, would it take to get you back to the cinema? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Jocelyn Sapeniak-Gillies is an Associate Professor of English and Director of Film Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Jocelyn, it's great to have you back. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, Dean. Well, Barbenheimer was the big movie event of the summer, and it did get a lot of people back into theaters. What do you think worked? What clicked? Yeah, it really was this major cultural phenomenon this summer in a way that we haven't seen in, well, in, in certainly in recent memory for me. I think what clicked, and I really felt it too, you know, I have some critical distance as a professor of film studies and as somebody who writes about um, the history of movie theaters, but I felt it too when I was in the audience for Barbie that it just felt like something that everybody was participating in. Um, It was a real moment where you had that experience of being in public with people that you don't know, but where you're all engaged in the same thing. You're all excited about the same thing. And that's what I think really did it. It wasn't about any kind of like new high tech um, uh, experience in the movie theater. It wasn't about like some great new concessions. It was just about the thrill of being there with other people and the excitement of um, being in the movie theater together again. And what do you think as you have some some time to look back on your Barbenheimer experience? What do you think (laughs) movie theaters and the theater industry can can learn from this and maybe replicate in the future? Yeah, what I'm really hoping that movie theaters can learn from this is that we don't really need to treat audiences like they're totally gullible and totally stupid all the time, right? Maybe we can provide a relatively intelligent film, you know, something that is both fun and clever and a little bit smart and trust that that will bring people back together and that people actually just want to experience things together. They want that real purity of film experience again. And we can provide that just by giving pretty decent movies that aren't like totally dumbed down for the entire population. And looking at past year's top 10 grossing films, there's a lot of sequels. There's a lot of Marvel superhero movies. And that's also the case this year, but Barbie's number one, Oppenheimer's up there. There are original films too. Do you think there is, uh, we're seeing kind of an appetite for something new and fresh? You know, I really, really hope that's the case. Let's of course remember that 
Barbie is still based on, you know, on an already existing toy, something that has a lot of cultural, um, cultural cachet already. So it is something recognizable. I would say it's not entirely separate from the other kind of franchise films that we see because, you know, it's an existing property, right? It's, it's an already extant uh, creative property. But there's something different and, um, you know, kind of extravagant done with it. Uh, one of the things that I really loved watching Barbie was how beautiful the set design was. It was so creative. It wasn't really focused on CG. It was focused on physical sets. Um, that gave it a real kind of depth, um, a real feeling of immersion that we haven't seen in a really long time. And so I'm hopeful that recognizing that kind of artistry, that kind of craftsmanship um, in film as opposed to just the kind of um, uh, Marvel movies where everything sort of looks the same. There's all of these boxes you have to tick. It has to fit into a larger um, canon of product. I'm hoping that we can see a return to that kind of um, artisanal and craft, uh, really craftsmanship work um, in cinema. You mentioned the importance of familiar you know, products, IPs for people to, or intellectual properties for people to latch onto in the, in the movies. Is it possible that we're going to see a new type of MCU, the Mattel cinematic universe, rather than the Marvel? I mean, I think that's already happening. And it's, in a way, it's kind of a shame, right? Because Barbie was so successful and Mattel negotiated some outrageous amount of um, of the box office for Barbie too. I can't remember exactly the amount that they got, but it was it recently came out that um, in creating this film, they had negotiated a certain um, percentage. So Mattel's making money hand over fist. They've already announced other um, movies that will be coming up um, in the Mattel universe. I think that that's the wrong lesson from Barbie because sure, you might make some money. Um, you might uh, kind of have an immediate like brief influx of cash, but that's a little bit gratuitous. I think the lesson of Barbie is really that people want to enjoy seeing something a little bit new, a little bit different, and they want to enjoy seeing it with um, with a lot of people who are in- experiencing that same kind of sense of joy and excitement um, together. We're talking with Jocelyn Zapaniak-Gillis, Director of Film Studies at UW-Milwaukee, about where theaters go after the Barbenheimer summer and how to keep people coming back to the cinema. And Jocelyn, I want to look back in time a little bit now because theaters now are dealing with the threat of streaming. They're bouncing back from the pandemic. But it's not the first time that they face challenges. I'm thinking back to the 1950s when people started to have a television in their homes. How did the theater industry respond at that point? Yeah, I mean, the history of um, movie theater um, attendance, the history of exhibition, as we call it, um, is a history of constant threat, constant failure, um, and constant fear, because there's consistently this um, this moment of crisis where um, something is going to, uh, to take away all the box office numbers. This starts as early, of course, as the Great Depression. We have never returned to the same um, percentage of um, attendance with weekly attendance that we had um, prior to the Great Depression. So from that moment on, we see these continual moments of crisis in the movie theater industry in exhibition, um, where theaters are theater owners are really freaking out about um, people no longer wanting to come to the movies. This really comes to a head in the 1950s when television uh, really takes the country by storm. Of course, television had been available before then, but the 50s, it really becomes um, more widely um, economically available to a majority of the population. 
and exhibitors are terrified. They think, well, nobody's going to come in anymore. Everybody's just going to sit at home in their comfortable chair. They're not going to bother like with the annoyance of the crowds. So they come up with all sorts of some are respectable ideas and some are completely outlandish ideas for bringing people back <laughs> into the theaters. Um, the, one of the first big ones is the introduction of 3D, which has a brief kind of 18 month <laughs> um, process in the theater because people actually didn't like 3D that much. Um, but 3D has a big moment. Expanded screens, screens get bigger and bigger and bigger in the 1950s because that's something that television can't do. Television at that time, especially, could not provide you with um, anything much larger than like your standard um, square television set in your living room. But a theatrical screen could expand and it could expand horizontally. So we see that happening um, really significantly throughout the 1950s. And then we see um, really creative, hilarious people like William Castle, who was a gimmick filmmaker, who would make these kind of silly horror movies, but he had all these gimmicks that came along with them, such as um, for his great movie, The Tingler, which if you haven't seen- Oh yeah, I The Tingler. The Tingler's It'll amazing. It'll get you. <laughs> it'll get you and it was shown with percepto which was basically like a little electric shocker in certain seats <laughs> in the audience that would actually shock people at certain moments of like the film's climax so there's all sorts of like some are you know kind of impressive technological feats some are just kind of ridiculous like skeletons flying through the air but you're still not going to get that at home let's go to our calls now we have laura with us in manitowoc hi laura hi what did you want to tell us about? It was movie theaters. Um, I am one of those people who, after many, many years of not going to see a movie, did go back to see Barbie and uh, really enjoyed it. And in talking to people about that, I found that amongst my friends, a lot of the reason um, that people weren't going to go see it, even though they wanted to, was cost. So a lot of those people are waiting to, um, you know, stream it or see it some way that's going to cost less. So I think that's one thing. You know, movies are so expensive. Um, but for me personally, what I'd like to see, what would really get me into the theater more would be if if we could um, participate. Oh, Laura, you, your signal broke up there for us. But thank you for the call. Uh, Jocelyn, what did you think about what Laura had to say in terms of cost and that being a barrier to entry coming into the movie theater? Oh, I, I totally agree. Um, and when we think about going to the movies, of course, it's not just the price of the ticket, it's the price of the concessions. And the concessions is where um, movie theaters traditionally make the majority of their money. So that's why they're so expensive. Um, but even if we're just looking at the price of a ticket, it's expensive, but it can be worth it if you get a really great experience. And by great experience, I don't just mean like the quality of the film. I mean the quality of the actual movie theater. I mean the quality of the projection. Um, and one of the things that I would really love to see a return to would be something like unionized projectionists. For a very long time, being a projectionist in a movie theater was a, was a really good job. And it was a good job because there was a union that you could be a part of. And that ensured, of course, good wages. It ensured certain um, working conditions. Now, projection is kind of farmed out to um, anybody who works in the movie theater. And, you know, I love movie theater workers. I'm not down on any movie theater workers. You are all my heroes. But there should be training. You know, there should be um, there should be the notion that projection is a respectable and respected career. And right now, with the utter corporatization of movie theaters, 
we just don't really have that anymore. So I think if we're paying a lot for a ticket, we should expect to see really beautifully projected films with really exquisite sound. And then the ticket doesn't seem quite so expensive because it's about that entire really excellent technological experience. Jocelyn Zapaniak-Gillies is with us, Associate Professor of English and Director of Film Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. We're talking about how movie theaters can keep up the momentum of getting people into the theater. And we want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Have you seen any movies in the cinema lately? What brought you there? What kind of movies would bring you back if you haven't been there yet? Or do you prefer watching from home and why? Let us know at 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. When I wake up in my own pink world, I get up out of bed and wave to my homegirls. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter. We just heard Lizzo's song Pink from the new Barbie movie, which broke box office records this summer. And we're talking about what brings people into the movies and how movie theaters can keep people coming back. Jocelyn Sapaniak-Gillies from UW-Milwaukee is with us, and we're taking your calls as well. I want to go next to Mike in Sheboygan. Hi, Mike. Hi. Um, I was hoping that the uh, movie about gold in my ear would uh, have uh, legs outside the Milwaukee area, but apparently the Marcus decided to limit it. But it, uh, it's the kind of movie that I think, uh, you know, a good adult uh, movie like uh, like Oppenheimer uh, would be interesting since gold in my ear was raised in Milwaukee. And I, I also um, remember a movie that's now 30 years old that also had a profound impact on me and that was schindler's list uh, movies like that i think are, are geared towards people who are a little more mature than, than just the uh you know the, the movies that are animation so uh gold in my ear uh movie and bring back the schindler's list sure mike thanks for the call uh, jocelyn what do you think about more movies perhaps being aimed at older crowds yeah, I mean, I think we've seen with the success of Oppenheimer this summer, which, okay, so it wasn't as successful as Barbie, but it still was pretty successful. It was kind of a pretty big deal. I think there's always a market um, for movies targeted toward adults. What is interesting about Oppenheimer's success is that it was a summer release. And we'll see a lot of the time that box office numbers will be higher for more um, adult-oriented films in the fall, in the winter, in that kind of lead-up to the Oscar season. That's typically when these sort of prestige pictures are reserved for the studios to release in the hopes of getting those Oscar nominations. So I think the lesson to be learned from Oppenheimer this summer is that um, an adult-oriented film can actually be successful in the summer blockbuster moment. It just has to be marketed um, in the right way. Hilariously, I think that so much of Oppenheimer's success, of course, has to be linked up with its association with Barbie and that that wonderful kind of absurd joke that the entire country decided, decided to participate in, <laughs> which I am just like utterly delighted by. Mike, thanks for the call. Let's go next to Scott in Green Bay. Hi, Scott. Hi there. Um for years, I worked at the Green Bay Film Festival, and we brought in many independent films to our festival. But um, we struggled when COVID hit and, and, and attendance started to drop with how could we bring people into the festival when some of these films they could just stream at home? 
And one of the points that I kept highlighting was the, the interaction and in discussing the films and talking about what you had just seen. When you're at home watching a film by yourself or with, you know, media family, you may be able to talk to one or two people. But if you go out to a theater or to a festival, you're amongst a group of people and you can talk about that film and what you just witnessed. And so I, you know, sometimes when it comes to a theater, what can you do that differentiates the, the experience at the theater versus just streaming at home? Scott, thank you for the call. Uh, Jocelyn, what do you think? Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Um, maybe we're not going to have conversations with every stranger we're around at a movie theater, right? Like that, that might be a little bit weird. But you do have the opportunity to have those moments in the lobby where, you know, you recognize one another, you see one another. And who knows, maybe you didn't both love the movie. Maybe you didn't like both um, hate it, whatever. Maybe you had different reactions. But what's important in that moment is that you experience something together. And I think in this moment in time when we are so atomized as a culture, we're so stuck in, um, in our own beings, our own perspectives. Um, we're so stuck in our own personal screens just knowing that we're experiencing something else with somebody else in a physical environment, I think it has a whole new array of meaning. That has always been the hope of the movie theater. You know, the hope has always been that maybe we can experience something together and maybe we can find some common ground where we can interact and we can talk and we can recognize that we are human beings in the same place experiencing art or even like garbage <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> The point is that we're experiencing it together and we've developed some kind of common ground. And that that is the hope of the theater. Scott, thanks for the call. Uh, time for one more call. We have Nancy with us in Grafton. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Well, when I was a little girl up in Marathon County on a farm, you know, in Edgar, our, our little hometown, they would have a movie and you could come and drive in there and you could park in the yard. It's a, and then they would show the movie on a side of a, a big uh, shed that was there. And it didn't cost anything, of course. You could just drive it. But, uh, yeah, you could sit in your car and you could see the movie that was on that shed. And uh, I don't know how many years it lasted. But when I was a little kid, I remember going watching a movie on a shed. Wow, Nancy, thank you so much for sharing that. That's a great memory. Uh, Jocelyn, I know outdoor movies are a small part of the, the movie theater industry, but maybe during the pandemic, did we see a boost in drive-ins? We sure did. And that was just like the most charming story. I would just like love to hear more of that. It's it's also it's a great reminder of um, all of the film culture that has always existed in addition to or beyond the movie theater. Um, there's all of these other places where people experience film that demonstrate how it's it's so integrated into American culture in so many ways. It's why it's like such an important thing to talk about, because it is it is fundamental to our experience as American citizens to um, to see film, whether it's in the theater or like charmingly on the side of a shed. And, you know, during during the pandemic, when a lot of theaters started to show things um, outdoors, that also became well, it had a certain charm to it because it had a sort of DIY feeling to it. Right. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I think theaters need to need to think about bringing back, you know, maybe we don't need all of these arcades in the lobby spaces. Maybe we don't need all of these um, awful like reclining chairs everywhere. Maybe we don't need um, entire dinners in the movie theater. 
maybe what we need is the feeling that we're coming together as a community, doing something together, experiencing something together, and we all get to make of it what we will, right? We get to like dress up however we think Barbie would want us to dress up. We get to dress up um, however we think might, um, might equate like an atom bomb theme for Oppenheimer. <laughs> we want to feel like we're all participating and we're all doing it together. And that, that is like real magic. And maybe have some of that pink drizzled popcorn that I had in the theater <laughs> watching Barbie. It wasn't bad. It was pretty good. Um, I didn't have that. I should have had that. <laughs> it was good. Uh, Jocelyn, um, we just have a, oh, a minute and a half left or so, but tell us, what are you looking forward to in the theater? What movies uh, are on your radar right now? Yeah, there's a couple coming out that I am pretty excited for. So the one that I am probably the most excited about is Jonathan Glazer's new film, which is called The Zone of Interest. He is such a strange and talented and wonderful filmmaker. His last feature was Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson, that really wonderful, creepy science fiction film that's just so amazing in so many ways. Also, its own kind of spectacle, really, really gorgeously made, but um, very creative, very strange, very outlandish. So this film is actually um, a historical period piece, um, and it's about um, it's about some Germans who live right next door to um, to a concentration camp. Um, but it looks like it, it's a departure for Glazer, but it looks um, it looks really, really interesting and very chilly and very fascinating. Um, I'm also excited for Yorgos Lantimos's new film. Of course, he made The Favorite as well as some other um, some other films that are wonderfully weird. He's a member of the new Greek weird um, kind of filmmaking mode, um, probably the most celebrated and uh, famous of all of them. And his new film, Poor Things, uh, is a kind of like it's, it's almost like a Frankenstein type story and it, it just looks really exciting. Emma Stone uh, gets resurrected. So she plays a resurrected corpse, which, which I'm just rather delighted by. So I'm very excited uh, for that one as well. Well, Jocelyn, it is always a delight to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's so wonderful to be with you. It's great to talk with you, Dean. Thank you. That was Jocelyn Sapeniak-Gillies, Director of Film Studies at UW-Milwaukee, talking with us about the movie industry and how theaters can keep people coming back to the seats. It's Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Ferret. You're with us on the Ideas Network. Advancements in artificial intelligence are changing the way we produce written material. Language model chatbots like GPT can pull from the full knowledge base of the internet and churn out coherent, advanced writing in just seconds. That raises ethical, ethical questions for all forms of formal writing, including in the classroom. ChatGTP can produce an original college-level book report in just a few clicks, making it hard for English teachers to tell what students actually wrote themselves. Our next guest says these technologies mean we need to rethink how we teach English class and engage students in real writing. We want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. How do you think we should handle AI and ChatGPT in classrooms? Are you concerned about the ways the younger generation will be learning to write? Do you think they need to learn to write? If you are or have been a teacher, how do you think English class could be changed for the better? Give us a call at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email us at ideas at wpr.org. Daniel Herman is a high school teacher at Maybach High School in Berkeley, California, and a faculty associate at Bard College's Institute for Writing and Thinking. 
He's the author of the book, Zen and the White Whale, a Buddhist rendering of Moby Dick. He wrote a column in The Atlantic late last year about AI in English class. And his follow-up piece this month is called High School English Needed a Makeover Before ChatGPT. Daniel, welcome to Central Time. Thank you so much for having me. Daniel, you have had a front row seat to this change in how students can write. You've tested it out yourself by feeding prompts into it from your class. For those of us listening who aren't familiar with ChatGPT and what it can do, can you give us an idea of you know what it makes students capable of in an English class? Oh, geez, where do I even start? I mean, maybe the the first thing that I ever saw was on <clears throat> what we used to call Twitter last, I guess, late November. The first thing I ever saw was somebody had asked it to rewrite the uh, to be or not to be soliloquy from Hamlet in the voice of Donald Trump. And just in an instant, it spit back this pretty hilarious, clever, clever thing. And when I started playing around with it and I asked it to um, tell me a bedtime story for my kids that puts together um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and Harry Potter or whatever it is. I mean, it really can can do can do anything. And we could talk about that for, for hours. What for me really sort of made my, uh, started giving me heart palpitations was when I started feeding it prompts that I would give my students for big formal uh, formal assignments and watched it just make short work of something that would take my, my students um, ages. And that's when my own journey really started. And, um, you know, ChatGPT, for all that is terrifying and overwhelming about it, it's really been an opportunity over the over the past nine months or so to look at what we're doing in English classes and why we're doing it to think about what we're talking about when we talk about quote unquote English class. And when you first started realizing what could be done with this and you know, book reports and essays being able to be spit out in just seconds, what sort of questions first came to mind? Was it terror? Was it opportunity? What did you feel? <laughs> oh, that's a little bit of both, I guess. Um, <laughs> You know, it's it's funny that, again, it's really made me think about this tradition that we've been handed down of what is supposed to happen in an English class. It's, it's funny because, of course, it's broken into pieces, composition over here, liberal arts, literature. But it's really a, a historical accident that we ended up with the tradition that we have today where it is just taken for granted that we should be writing essays about the great Gatsby, that students should be able to write something that is cohesive and consistent and advancing an argument that is doing this literary analysis about a, about a modern text. That's again, I mean, there, I could, could go into, go into detail, but it's a long story that goes hundreds of years back, 300 years in the, in the past, people wouldn't have thought that um, students should be able to write what we now think of as the dreaded five paragraph essay. And at the same time, it really has made me think about uh, writing in a completely different way. I've always just said, this is something that you're going to be able to have to do, that somebody's going to ask you to, to write uh, in this way moving forward. And if that's not the case anymore, if, uh, if a computer can do it for us in the same way that I don't need to know how to multiply three digit numbers in, in my mind because I have, have a calculator. Again, I'm not immediately saying that it's not worth doing, but it's worth asking the question, why is it worth doing? Especially, and this is such a, a key point for me, is 
to watch my students who are already stressed out and overwhelmed in all the ways that we were all so familiar with have such a hard time with in particular formal writing assignments. And I can say more in a minute, we do pretty much all we do in my English class is writing in the classroom and sharing, sharing our writing. But then there's this pivot where they have to take all that writing and turn it into something polished. And that's super challenging for so many of my students. And I'll be, you know, no shade to my students who I all love and are all brilliant in any number of ways, but not all of them are going to be wonderful writers in the same way that I can carry a tune, but I'll never be a wonderful singer, no matter how hard I, I work at it. So are there ways that we can shift what we're expecting of students to maximize the benefits and minimize the, the detriments? We're talking with Daniel Herman right now, high school teacher from Maybeck High School in Berkeley, California, author of two recent columns in The Atlantic about how AI and ChatGPT could change English, English class in the future. And Daniel, what are some of those ways that you think we can reorient our thinking about writing in a positive way? How could we, you know, let ChatGPT not take over, but sort of change our thinking to a more useful way for students? Yeah, totally. So it's funny. I mean, really sort of uh, an epiphanic moment for me was realizing just how much writing my students do all the time, that when I was a teenager, I would be on the phone with my friends and I think that happens way uh, less frequently now. Students or you know, teenagers are texting each other or writing uh, captions for on Instagram or TikTok or, or whatever they're doing. They're actually writing a lot. And so when I uh, was hired at, at my current job 10 years ago, the, my, my boss, this guy, Bill Webb, introduced me to something called the, the writing-centered model in, in the classroom. And uh, this is the work that I'm now doing with uh, Bard College at the Institute for Writing and Thinking, or IWT. And instead of what many people will know as a discussion-based model or Socratic method, where a teacher asks a question into the room, and then students raise their hand and they say things that uh, the teacher can either say, oh, that's good, or, oh, okay, maybe we should think about this in another way. In this model, a teacher asks a question into the room. A rule of thumb is never ask a question you know the answer to. And then all students write a response and the teacher does it along with them. And I'll ask a few questions. We all do this writing and then we share some of what we wrote. And pretty much that's what we do for 80 minutes a day for, for a few weeks. And all my students are good at it. Hmm. They might not like it. It's, it's hard. It's, it's exhausting. But they don't write sort of uh, formal, quote unquote, writing or polished, quote unquote, writing. They write the way that they would talk. And they have phenomenal ideas and insights about, about the text. And I might ask them, what does this text remind you of? Or... Uh, what's a line that you're interested in or curious about? What's something weird that you found in this text? And then at the end of all that, they take all that writing and they are going to, yes, turn it into something more uh, um, cohesive that they're going to turn in for, for uh, to be assessed. And what I found is, so the guy who started this writing-based pedagogy is a guy named Peter Elbow, and he had this distinction between low-stakes writing and high-stakes writing. And when he talked about high-stakes writing, he meant because it was going to be graded. And I've been thinking about high-stakes writing in a different sense. High-stakes because it's meaningful to them, that they're going to be way less likely to go to ChatGPT if, when it comes to writing this thing that they're going to be graded on, they already have 
a ton of writing that they've done in the classroom. And a lot of it is about them. And it's something that they already feel connected to rather than in the discussion-based model where they go home with practically nothing unless they're taking notes during a discussion, which I think is pretty rare for students and have to face this dreaded blank page with the blinking cursor asking them to write the introduction and then the body paragraphs, blah, blah, blah. So it's really opened up uh, a lot of ways to, to think about other forms of, of essay. And if it goes in unexpected directions, that's fine. If it um, has transitions that, that uh, don't quite fit together, really um, what's the most important or rather than me ensuring that students are conforming to this um, rigid model, really wanting to, um, to emphasize that they are learning and thinking and something that's frankly worth, worth doing and really gonna increase their well-being. We're talking with writer and high school English teacher Daniel Herman about artificial intelligence and how ChatGPT could make us rethink how we teach English classes. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you used ChatGPT or something similar? Do you think there's room to incorporate it in an English class? If you're a teacher, current or former, we would love to hear from you. Have you seen this at play in your classroom? Are you scared? Are you hopeful? Let us know what you think. 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or you can email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Dean Knetter. Right now we're picking up the talk with Daniel Herman. He's a writer and a high school teacher at Maybeck High School in Berkeley, California. We're talking with him about his recent pieces for The Atlantic, the latest of which is called High School English Needed a Makeover Before ChatGPT. And Daniel, before the break, uh, you were talking about the new approach that you're trying in your classroom. And I remember when I was in school, probably long before, the five-paragraph essay was the way to write. And it almost felt like you're just checking off the points on a rubric. It sounds like you're hoping that content and ideas come first and then you can polish it up later with chat gpt or not is that a change we maybe should have been exploring before ai oh yeah for sure i mean if for no other reason that students hate it i mean they just (laughs) it is so it is so deadening to them and at the same time it's funny because for years i you know i teach essays really extraordinary essays by by Virginia Woolf and Annie Dillard and James Baldwin. And none of them is a five paragraph essay. They are creative and experimental and just and wonderful. And my students say, wait, how come you call this an essay? And then when we have to write an essay, it has to be introduction, thesis statement, body paragraph, body paragraph, body paragraph, or body paragraphs forever for 15 pages, 20 pages, body paragraphs. But then this conclusion that wraps everything up with a nice, nice, pretty bow. And there have always been different ways to, to think of, think of an essay. And even then I'll, I'll go further that, you know, I, I think that it's worth considering that maybe Maybe I'll back up and say, as a teacher, there's nothing better than being in a classroom, being engaged with 20 people or 40 people who are all thinking about the same thing with their minds and what their experiences and beliefs. And to bring all those things together is just, there's sparks. It's so exciting. 
And then everybody retreats to their individual screens and everybody is expected to write their own statement about basically, this is why I'm right about this idea about the Great Gatsby or, or whatever. And another opportunity that ChatGPT offers us is maybe we can think about that entire structure of, of the essay. Maybe we can do something more collaborative where so last, last semester, I tried different things out where I would ask students questions they would answer in a Google document, and then those documents would be shared, and each student would end up with a few of their classmates writing and their own on a document, and they would be able to get rid of what they didn't like without that student seeing, they would all make copies, and respond to it, offer rebuttals, expand on it if they like those ideas, and then they would submit that for, uh, for a grade. So it's not just their own voice in its own individual silo, but they and, and people who they maybe disagree with have to, uh, have to coexist. And, you know, I, I, I want as a, a blanket caveat for anybody who's listening to this and screaming about um, all the um, expectations that are put on, on students with standardized tests and everything, I totally, I, I want to be completely uh, open about the fact that things are going to move way slow, way more slowly than, than they should. In the same way that AP exams for years have been graded based on how many fancy vocab words students, students have. And that doesn't show that they really um, have learned something about, uh, about the topic in the AP exam. It just learned that they know how to take an AP exam. So I understand that, um, the way that things should go and the way that they are going to go are not going to be the same the same thing, but um, these things are worth uh, considering as far as I know. And Daniel, you note in your pieces on this that not every high school is the same, not every classroom is the same with curriculum, class sizes. We just have about a minute left, but could you speak to the teachers out there who might be seeing this creep into their classrooms too, whatever the subject, and um, give them some thoughts about how to think about ChatGPT. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess just for all of us have this opportunity to think about what's worth doing. And we all have to do things that we don't want to do, like like grade and, and all, you know, parent-teacher night or back-to-school night. But for me, for my students, there's nothing that I feel would be more beneficial to persuade them that books are worth their time. I've been thinking about that movie, uh, The Clockwork Orange, with the Ludovico technique, where they have to pin the guy's eyeballs open, so he has to look at this terrible image. That's what I want to do with great literature, so students are convinced that this is something that they should really um, have as part of their life. And there are ways that will encourage that, as far as, I, um, as far as I'm concerned. And then what we've been doing for so long is, in my experience, not the way to, to persuade them of that. Well, we'll leave it there. Daniel, thank you for joining us and for sharing this with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Daniel Herman is a high school teacher at Maybach High School in Berkeley, California, and faculty associate at Bard College's Institute for Writing and Thinking. He's the author of the book Zen and the White Whale, a Buddhist rendering of Moby Dick. He was with us today to discuss two columns he wrote for The Atlantic called The End of High School English and High School English Needed a Makeover Before ChatGPT.